My guest this week on the show is Dr. John Finn. John's brand is Tougher Minds. That's a registered trademark. And he's developed a series of programs under the brand of Habit Mechanic. In fact, right now, he is launching an app and a certification program to certify coaches and trainers in delivering his intellectual property. And that's one of the things I want to talk to him about today. Uh, what prompted him to do this and how's it going? Uh, John is a contributor to Forbes Coaches Council. Again, that's something that um, you might look at. I know several of the people that I'm connected with have been and are or have been at some point contributors to the Forbes Coaches Council. So lots of good stuff in this week's episode, not least because if you're someone who makes a living from developing programs, delivering training, then more than likely you're interested in what makes that content stick. It's not just enough to deliver a program and charge for it and walk out the door. How do you actually get people to use it, to apply it, and to do so on a consistent basis? Basically, habits. It's all about the power of habit. How do we anchor that uh, accountability in people's minds that helps them to develop their own habits for success. Lots of great stuff in this week's episode. This is the Training Business Podcast. Hey, and welcome to the trainingbusiness.com podcast. Every week, we bring you exciting news and interviews with training business experts and training business entrepreneurs from around the world. Thanks for tuning into today's episode. Here's your host, Mark Garrett Hayes. Hey, welcome to the Training Business Podcast. This is the weekly show for self-employed consultants, trainers, coaches, people out there in the learning and development community, people working for themselves, people like you and me. And if that describes you, you're in the right place because every single week we have an episode focusing on the business, business of you and me making money from our programs, our workshops, our courses, our books, our keynotes, all the things that we've developed or think we can develop to sell ourselves into great companies, working with customers one-to-one or one-to-many. Now, maybe you've got your own expertise business already. In other words, you've got some brand or you're confident about the kinds of programs that you have and who needs them and who wants to pay for them. Either way, every single Thursday, there is someone on the show to share their journey, their background, and their tips to making this work for them. I'm Mark. I'm a self-employed trainer, coach, published author. I've been employed, unemployed, self-employed, and I've worked and continue to work with other brands. Every Thursday, I'm privileged to speak to some wonderful people out there over the years, some really big names and some not so well-known names, but all of the content is valuable. And I've always picked up something from every guest that I interview. And I share these episodes at no cost to you. All I ask in return is that you click on follow or subscribe. If you've not done that right now, then please do it right now because it means a lot to me to know that people are finding value in the show and are telling other people about the show. If you've got some connections to people who are out there in the training, consulting, learning and development coaching community, then please tell them about the show. And uh, I would love to hear from you if you've got suggestions for the show. John, welcome to the show. Hi, Mark. Thank you for having me. You're based right now in, is it Leeds in the UK? Yes, in Leeds in the UK. Right. So your your title's intriguing, Dr. John Finn. What is your PhD in? 
my PhD was looking at the challenges, the barriers to fulfilling your potential um, when you're making a transition from being the best 18-year-old footballer or rugby player or cricketer in the world to maybe not even being deemed good enough to get paid a professional wage when you're you know, 22, 24. So we see that happen all the time, this transition between being a really good junior to a really good senior. Mm-hmm. And I studied the best of the best. Um, my background, my first professional... So I, I've worked in the areas of resilience, performance psychology, leadership for over 20 years. My first professional work was in elite sports psychology. Mm-hmm. And one of the teams I worked for that actually won um, won League, what was called League One, by and this is English professional football, by spending less money than any other team had ever done and acquired more league points. So it was the UK record mm-hmm. for spending less money per, per league point. And part of their strategy was their recruit young academy graduates from the Premier League teams or top championship teams. And some of those players that we'd sign, we maybe signed from £100,000. A few years later, we'd sell them on for millions of pounds. Some of the young players we signed for £100,000 a few years later, mm-hmm. they weren't worth anything, essentially. No one wanted to pay them a professional wage. Not so much at our club, actually. We were very good at it, but certainly so other clubs... And across other sports. So I got really interested in why was that happening? For me, it wasn't anything to do with how talented they were in that traditional sense, their technical and tactical abilities. It was to do with their ability to turn up every day, work hard, and then perform under pressure when it mattered. And I knew that they weren't really getting a lot of training to help them to understand how to how would describe it now, build better habits to turn up and work hard every day and build better habits so they could perform under pressure. Um, so I, I was, I was wanted, my hypothesis was that the players that were best at regulating their emotions would be the best at making successful transitions and that they could learn to get better at regulating their emotions. And therefore, if they could learn to do that, why wouldn't we formally train them to do that? in as they were you know learning to be a fantastic professional athlete because they were spending you know thousands if not tens of thousands of hours practicing and training but it was mainly focused on the physical technical tactical stuff um and i built tougher minds off off the back of that work really um and really when i talk about habits the number one habit I want to help people to build is implicit emotional regulation, which is like an automatic way of or semi-automatic way of regulating your emotions. So that was my PhD work. And they were the best of the best. So a guy called, there's a cricketer called Johnny Bester, who's across all formats, he's probably the best batsman in the world. He's, in, he's injured at the moment. He was the third study of my PhD. I spent a year with Johnny when he was 18 and he was on paper the best cricketer in the world at his age group, but he was then making that transition into the you know first team squad at Yorkshire mm. where there were lots of other players in front of him that were better than he was and just just trying to understand firsthand his experience through his own eyes and through his coach's eyes of what was going on, but also how he was dealing and managing 
and learning how to get better at dealing and managing. Yeah, so that's an overview of my PhD, which right. I use every day. <laughs> it sounds like it. And uh, your brand is called Tougher, Tougher Minds, and that's a registered trademark. And you describe yourself as habit mechanic and chief habit mechanic. Uh, you provide training coaching. Um, I want to talk to you about your business momentarily, but I'm still intrigued about the concept of psychology because there's such a huge amount of psychology in training and development. A lot of people will tell me that when they've got some proprietary research or some kind of science behind what they sell, they tend to be taken more seriously and can charge more for it. What's your view of that? Yeah, look, we run on habits, including our biases and our belief systems. And when you put a brain on the screen, for example, it's more convincing. <laughs> but that's, um, you know, that's real. So the people can use that to um, sell their products. But a lot of the time, in my experience, there's not a lot of substance behind, they say, science. I, I've worked in this field all my life. It's all I've done. I went to university to study sports science. I've got three degrees in this area. Um, you know, I've done all the peer-reviewed publications. I've, I've written a best-selling popular book as well. So people do use that as a, as a sales uh, tool. But I think often there's not much substance behind it. Mm -hmm. but it's definitely attractive to people. And I think, you know, I'll, I'll go out there and I'll say it. I don't, and this is what drove me to create my business. The vast majority of psychology support out there is a waste of time. It's all about knowing, so it's all focused on knowing more stuff. So in the UK, for example, more people than ever know and actually agree it's a good idea to eat five portions of fruit and vegetables a day and walk 10,000 steps. But the NHS spends more than half its annual budget, and the NHS is the biggest company in Europe, more than half its annual budget treating diseases that emerge because um, people don't do those things. Most people know and agree it's not a good idea to beat yourself up too often, but that doesn't make, that doesn't stop you doing it. And that, that's the challenge we've got with the psychological sciences is that I would say that they're about 70 years behind the physiological sciences. So in my in my best-selling book, The Habit Mechanic, one of the first chapters, I talk about Roger Bannister. So Roger Bannister was the first person to run the sub-four-minute mile. When he was doing, when he did that, he was training to be a medical doctor at Oxford University, but he was also actually a research scholar at Oxford. And he was getting people into the, the physiology labs at Oxford University in the 1940s. He was getting them on treadmills and he was measuring what we call their gas exchange there oxygen intake and their carbon dioxide output. And he used that data to inform his own training and running style, his, his habits basically around how he run, how he ran that distance and how he optimized his training. He was, so he was able to do that in the 1940s. And in fact, we could do that kind of research from about the 1930s. And if you walk into a modern day physiology lab now, the technologies that Bannister was using, although they're a bit more um, maybe accurate now and they look a bit slicker, they're fundamentally, it's the same kind of equipment. We've only been able to look inside the human brain for about 20, 25 years. So most of the theories that we're using, and, we, and you know, you don't just look inside the human brain and go, right, we know what's going on now. We've had to, we have to piece together all that data and all that information over the last 20, 25 years. And that means that most of the theories that I was taught 
when I threw across my three degrees, they're based on what we call black box models, black box theories, theories that didn't actually consider what was going on inside the human brain. And although a lot of what we call neuroscience is confirmatory science, there are some seismic insights that it's given us. Number one, brains are changing all the time until the day that you die. It's plasticity, right? Yeah, via a process called neuroplasticity. We have about a billion neurons. And when I was at school, and probably most of the people that listen to this podcast were at school, we, and I'm only, I'm 41 years old, we we were told that we were either good at something or we weren't good at it. And if we weren't good at something, we were never going to be any good at that. And if we spoke to the top neuroscientists 25 years ago, they were compelled that when you stop physically growing, your brain stopped changing in any meaningful way. That is utter nonsense. We didn't know any better at the time because we couldn't see inside the brain. So most of the things that I see out there in terms of the, um, from in the psychological sciences, I think they can do more damage than good because they don't go past the skill element. They give you some more knowledge, maybe a few skills, but actually they don't help you to turn something into a habit. And what we're now learning in the last few years is that habits is where the action is at. Not in the way that pop psychology has taught us, because that's done a really bad job at explaining what habits are. Habits are not 50, 60% of what, of what we do. They are, we are driven by mindless behavior. That means what you think and what you do. Is largely on autopilot. It's what Daniel Kahneman is talking about in his work that he won a Nobel Prize for. Yeah, uh, fast and slow thinking, was it? Fast and slow thinking. He just doesn't mm. call it habits, but he's really talking about thinking habits. Mm. Um, you know, lots of other very, very prominent uh, psychologists. George Lakoff's another great example. We know that what we think and do right now, so everything we're thinking and doing right now is at least 98% automatic. And sometimes it's 100% because we're just running on instinct. So if we want to actually help people to do better, forget the psychometrics, forget even some really well-established things like CBT by itself, that isn't enough to help you to build better habits because those things are not designed to help you to build better habits. Um, And it, it might sound really arrogant, me saying this, but that's why I've made it my absolute passion to take, I was, I was very lucky when I studied my master's, the academics that were teaching me, they were doing research, research with NASA, they were really fascinated by the new functional MRI scanner research that was coming out of France because France had invested in loads of functional MRI scanners. And we were getting this work hot off the press. Um, and I know that my education in that institute was, was very different to people that did similar programs at other institutes at the same time. So I got fascinated with this idea that we have to use insights from the brain. And even if we fast forward into the modern day where some people are using neuroscience insights for sure in the, in, to underpin their work, I don't see any other models or any other approaches apart from the habit mechanic approach that's using behavioral, in, behavioral science in a really holistic pragmatic way and this is another problem so when you go into academia you just find loads of people having theory wars with each other they'll go my theory is better than your theory and here's why your theory is rubbish academics are not incentivized to actually take their theory 
theoretical models and use them to really help people to do better. That's not what academia is about. It's about digging deeper. So what I found over the last 20 years is that I haven't found an, a, a behavioral science model that explains everything about why humans do what they do. So what we, we did over the years is we identified nine core models that we think were really powerful and became even more powerful when you plug them together. So we use our, we've got our nine action factor model that we think explains pretty much everything about why humans do what they do. And if you can start, if you can empower people to understand what those nine factors are and take more control of them, then life gets a lot easier. So we plug the neuroscience with the behavioral science. Okay. I want to come back to that in a second. Um, your framework and you, that, that, that's your intellectual property. Um, you mentioned psychometrics. Now, most of us listening in the training and uh, development slash learning and development slash consulting working with companies and their people will have heard of psychometrics before. We've got uh, Hogan, we've got um, MBTI, uh, 16 personalities, uh, Belbin, the list is endless. Um, what's your view? Because I know most trainers at some point have either been through those programs or they've, they've, um, they've actually taken them for themselves. What is your your academic view of, of the efficacy, the usefulness of those programs? Because I know many people out there are certified and they're selling them as part of their offering. Yeah, I mean, efficacy is an interesting word because it, you know, its efficacy can be about if you if the same person takes this test multiple times, you're going to get similar results, right? For me, I would think about efficacy as how helpful is this in helping the people to do better? Mm-hmm. How helpful is it in helping the business to do better? The, the f- most, of, well, the, the most famous psychometrics are up to a, over a hundred years old, right? So they were not designed anywhere near the point in history where we understood really how humans operated. Mm-hmm. And the other thing to bear in mind is that the world that those tools were designed in were very different to what we now call the VUCA world, where the only constant is change. Mm-hmm. So it used to be that you could learn a job and pretty much do that same job for the rest of your life. Now we know that the skills we have right now to help us to be really competent to our job probably are exactly the same skills we're going to need in 12 months because the tech will have changed, the rules will have changed. Psychometrics, this mm-hmm. idea that we can get some sort of magical insight into um, people's behavior and that will be able to predict their future performance is just a non-starter idea. We get good at what we practice. So what I can do in five years is not really connected to what I can do today. It's a much more accurate projection is what I practice tomorrow and the day after and the day after and the day after. I'll, I'll be good in five years' time will be an accumulation of what I practice in the next five years. So for me, the certain, you know, very famous neuroscientists are now saying, you know, psychometrics are about as predictive as horoscopes. For me, the fundamental problem is that they create a deterministic mindset. They create a mindset that you're either good at something or you're not good at it. And they're a bit of a con because basically the answers that they give you are just what you told the system. So and I've used a lot of psychometrics in my early work and people look at the results. How did you know that about me? 
well, because you told me, basically. <laughs> I'm just and the algorithm then you. works it out, right. Yeah, okay. I'm just feeding back to what you've put into the mm. system. So for us, we've, we've created habit metrics. Mm-hmm. That's a proprietary term as well. I would much rather spend time empowering people to understand themselves better, understand what we call their habit mechanic. Uh, well, yeah, un- develop their habit mechanic intelligence so that they understand where they're at where their automatic behavior is at and they're empowered to start working on themselves. Because for me, the, the basis of a successful organization is people turning up every day, wanting to get a little bit better. Mm-hmm. And that means we have to empower them to work on their habits. So for me, it's not about psychometrics, it's about habit metrics. Okay, let's talk about your business. Um, how many people in the business right now, tougher minds? So there are about 10 of us all together. Mm-hmm. Are they associates, employees? Yeah, so only only four of us deliver the training, and then we have background people. We're just developing. Um, well, we've actually we've got an app that we that we released maybe six months ago, and we're continuing to work on that. So we have some development people, we have some marketing people, etc. But what we've been doing over the past twenty years is refining an approach. So we've tried and tested and refined our habit building systems, if you like, what we, we call it mm-hmm. the uh, habit mechanic coaching and change management system. We've refined that process on over 10,000 people. And this has led us to the habit mechanic approach. And about nine months ago, we released our first major book called The Habit Mechanic. It's a best-selling book. And it's really, it's a manual for life. It's not um, mm-hmm. a pamphlet that has one idea repeated 10 times in it. It literally is all the training we've been creating, uh, creating over the last 20 years. We've put it in its best form into a book. And that book works with the app. So we are passionate now about scaling our business. And that's why we, for the first time ever, started to accredit people to become certified habit mechanic coaches so that they can use their hab- uh, habit metric uh, tools, for example, with their clients and in their organizations. Right. I want to talk to you about that for sure, because when I saw your profile, I thought, uh, that's interesting. You certify other people, coaches, to be certified mechanic or habit mechanic coaches. You train them effectively. Um, is that a franchise model or how does it work? It isn't a franchise model yet. So this is the first, currently the first group of people are doing it. Mm-hmm. Um and so we've got people who've started, we've got people who are going to start soon. We've had such a fascinating response to this. So we've had the American Air Force are really keen on this. The, we've got seriously world-famous sports coaches that haven't signed up yet, but they want, they want to do it. I just started last week working with the head of leadership development and organizational development, one of the biggest and most prestigious universities in the UK. Their narrative is all the same. What we currently do doesn't work. Traditional coaching doesn't work anymore. We need a different approach. These guys have done all the psychometrics on the planet. They don't work. Um, and we've also got people who've got their own coaching businesses, sort of learning and development managers in you know big uh, city of London businesses, typically who we work with, but also other businesses. So it's a whole range of people. And in the first instance, um, I'm working with everyone one-to-one. So we might get to the point where we license people to train others to become certified habit mechanic coaches. 
there are going to be some more nuances, levels to this as, as we progress through. But right now, we've, we're working with a, a small select group of people that we are showing how to use our habit coaching, our habit metrics, our habit building approaches for one-to-one coaching, but also how do we help them to uh, make it easier for people in their teams and their organizations to build better habits, which is the chief habit mechanic part. And there's huge um, interest in this right now for obvious reasons, because the premise of training and development of coaching is that we help someone to change, move from where they are uh, to where they want to be, or perhaps change their thinking and, and get results. And and I find, I'm sure you do too, that lots of training initiatives are well-intentioned, but there's no real clear understanding of how to anchor that training, which is information, into transformation that people now use to actually keep on doing the thing that they've been trained to do. This is the thing. It's all about habits. Mm-hmm. And there's a science to building by the habits. For me... The habit science, which I see as a combination of behavioral science and neuroscience, is the next frontier mm-hmm. for human performance. Whether you whether you want to help someone uh, to become better at sales, better at marketing, a better leader, whatever it is, we can use habit science to help them to do that. And we've created an entire ecosystem around that from the, the frameworks you can use to create your training through to habit metrics you can use to help your clients to measure their habits, through to uh, ways to keep triggering and reminding them and rewarding them so that they keep Hmm. practicing the things that are actually going to help them to get the outcomes that you really want for them. Almost on a weekly basis now, I turn down the opportunity to do workshops or webinars because I don't want just to go into an organisation and do a workshop or a webinar that's well-received but forgotten the next day. I want to empower um, L&D teams and organizations to be far more strategic in the way they think about changing people's behavior. So I'd much prefer them to train to become a certified habit mechanic coach so then they can use our workshops and our Mm -hmm. webinars strategically Mm -hmm. as part of a system to change people's behavior. How did you get into... Uh, organizations like ING, the Big Dutch Bank, HSBC, Deloitte? Great question. So my career, which mirrors Tougher Minds um, growth, went from elite professional sport into education. So off the back of my PhD, um, I got approached by some private schools. So who are, I think in the right world, champion, I suppose they're owned, which is not quite the right word, by a livery company in the city of London called the Haberdashers. Very famous um, livery company that has a lot of really excellent uh, schools in its system. Yeah. And they wanna, they put up money to bring experts into their schools through teaching fellowships. This was approaching the London 2012 Olympic Games. Um, a Haberdasher, it's called Colin, Sir Colin Moynihan, was a former UK sports minister former Olympic medalist, and at the time he was the head of the British Olympic Association, he said, why wouldn't you teach young people sports psychology? Because I've benefited from that across my everything that I've done. So I got tasked with, can you go into our Monmouthshire schools, which are a 
a set of boarding schools in Wales, probably the most prestigious. They're called the Hogwarts of Wales. It's a modern profession. Uh, <laughs> Can you go into the schools and they're all set excellent sport and embed performance psychology? So that I got sort of a blank piece of paper, two years to go in and just sort of embed what and help the staff embed more deliberate ways of developing these young people psychologically. That led us to speaking to parents and working with parents. And it also led, it got this got a, a lot of um, profile in the broadsheets. It got other schools interested. So essentially our parent training basically led to parents saying, this is miles better than anything we get at work. Can you come into our uh, work and do this? So for example, the ING piece was a parent that had done our training who said that. And ING is a very... Um, self-determining organization so it's always done all the training is done through employee forums so they will the employees will pick the training program so we went and we pitched to the employee forum and they picked us to do the training program so so it was the parents saying this is better than what we get can you come and do it for us can i ask you to explain upon uh, expand upon that one please john you said pitch to the employee forum no one's ever said that to me before how does that work pitch to an employee form in an organization. Yeah, so the, Most of us, you see, go in through the front door or the back door, which is usually L&D. Yeah, so the the ING in, in London, um, one of the most self-determining organizations I, I've worked with, and the senior leaders there are you know, really, really, really people-focused. They're not just going to bring in a supplier because they think it's the best supplier. They almost let the employees vote. So there's a committee of employees that are taking mm. responsibility for the training. This coincided with a big um, move in ING into agile ways of working. So they were rolling that out across uh, uh, globally. Uh, but there was some flexibility in that for the local branches like the, the, like the London office to bring in some bespoke support for their people. So London felt their people needed something a bit different. So they were looking for a support solution. And it's actually really interesting that we did that that first round of training with ING maybe four years ago or so now, I think. And we've, I've been speaking to them recently. And the, the senior leader, um, who was the chief administration officer at the time, he said that he feels very strongly that the people that did that program fed far better in COVID and subsequently than people that didn't do it. John, where can people find out more about you? You've mentioned your uh, brand name a couple of times. So where would you like people to go? So if you go to our website, which is tougherminds.co.uk, you can find more about us there. You can see the book there, Habit Mechanic. You can access the app there, which is free, and it's on Apple and and Google, Habit Mechanic University app. Um, Also, you can find the book in all online stores, including Amazon, the Habit Mechanic. I am very active on LinkedIn. So if you mm-hmm. want to connect with me on LinkedIn, it's Dr. John Finn. Just just tell me you've heard me on Mark's podcast and I'll happily connect with you. And yeah, if you want to get in touch, just contact us through the website. Right. Great. John, thank you so much for being my guest today on the show. Thank you, Mark. It's been a pleasure. My sincere thanks to John for being my guest this week. And you can check out John over on his LinkedIn profile. My sincere thanks to you for listening again this week. 
If you've got suggestions, you can drop me a line, mark at trainingbusiness.com. My team, Sam, Joe, James, Turul, Joe, and I, I think I mentioned Joe twice there. That's okay. Um, Joe and the rest of us really appreciate your loyalty, your time, and I'd love you to come back next week. Please click on follow, subscribe to be notified of great episodes as they appear. You'll find all episodes, past, present, and future, on your podcast platform of choice, as well as over at trainingbusiness.com. Until next Thursday, when I know you'll be back for more. Keep going, keep selling, keep training. Bye for now. Thanks once more for listening to this episode of the trainingbusiness.com podcast. See you next time.